0: We live inside a dream. What? I say outer, you say space. Hello and welcome to Stan and Dave Need Wedding dates. With, uh, your two favorite wimps who like Kubrick and Lynch. My name is Eric Keppel.
1: And my name is Jeremy Schmidt.
0: The cosmos, Jeremy, we're, we're floating out there in, in the great expanse. Yes. Look, there's a star over there and what what's that with the rings around it? Could it be oh, Jupiter?
1: That is, it's it's a it's a Jupiter. Quick, <laughs> Eric, let's let's hover over towards it. Uh, okay. now we're here. So,
0: is that me as an old man? <laughs> Dang, this bedroom is like insane to me. I guess yeah. we'll talk about it, but uh, that room is 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 crazy um so this is a stanley kubrick and david lynch podcast uh if you've been following us up until now we just finished uh twin peaks season two very ready to talk about stanley kubrick again uh we're kind of back to the uh the films jeremy and up top and maybe this is like more of an off-air conversation but uh why the hell not bring it up right now um why didn't you text me back dude no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, do, so we we did, listeners know that we did a two-part episode on The Shining uh, yes. not too long ago. Right. Uh, what do you think, uh, do we do another Shining episode, or uh, what are your thoughts on this?
1: I think that we, that's a great question, because we could <laughs> do something fun like cover Doctor Sleep or something instead, sure. or we could just plain revisit The Shining I do not think there is going to be... I bet if we recorded an episode of The Shining, it would be completely different to the episode we did. I think so too. I think there's I think so, so much too. to say about it. There's and there's an infinity amount of episodes we could do. Kubrick films are like a good book in that I hate them. No, they're like a good book <laughs> in that you can watch them over and over again and have different things to say and different thoughts about them. I know that the last time we did it, which was about October of 2019, I like totally got something out of it I had never considered before, and I bet that would happen this time. But ultimately, it's up to the fans.
0: <laughs> yeah, I want to know if, they, if you have any thoughts on this. We'll do whatever. We'll do whatever you want. I mean, yeah. obviously, I would watch The Shining again, and of course do another episode on it if if people wanted that. Um but I was just curious cuz I think we're coming up to that in I guess maybe a couple weeks here. Or so I think
1: it's so two it's, weeks, right? The Shining yeah. comes after 2001. Is that Or no, is it Clockwork no, Orange? No, no, no. Clockwork Clock Orange. Orange. Oh, yeah. so yeah, then we're a few weeks away. Is, is Barry there, Lyndon
0: before The Shining? Uh I think
1: it might be. God, I am bad. At f- being a fan of Stanley You know what? Cooper. I think it is. I think
0: it is. Uh, so so it's
1: a while then before we get to the shining. Yeah. You know, uh, is there a world though? Check this out. <laughs> okay. Is there a world where we do cover 2010, the year we make contact, instead <laughs> of The Shining?
0: Okay. We were talking about this a little off air. Tell me... <laughs> uh, so tell me about this movie, because I I t- just heard like read very recently that there's a sequel to 2001.
1: Yes, there is a sequel. It is directed by Peter Hyams or Hyams. It is uh-huh. starring Roy Schneider. It is it has the Star Child on the cover of the film. So I'm okay. guessing we start where that left off. It also has Helen Mirren, Bob Balaban, and John Lithgow. In the cast, it's wow. also directed, produced, That's and nice. written by the same person, Peter Helms. And it's based on the novel, 2010, Odyssey 2, written by Arthur C. Clarke. I oh. have heard nothing good about this film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the, it it did almost double its budget, which was okay. cool. But I just don't know anything about it. I'm getting if I had to guess not having seen it or even a single frame of the film, it is a much more like palatable, like Hollywood film with some of the same shit in it. Like maybe the, I don't know the big black square (laughs) or big black rectangles in it. And maybe Hal's back. (laughs) I don't know, but I'm I'm sure it completely ruins the conceit of the first film because how could it not the guy who directed it also directed time cop okay so i'm expecting Great. a time cop version of the film
0: yeah 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 okay uh yeah i'm looking at some stills from it uh i don't know well we'll let's do what the fans want us to yes. do. yes um do- we'll, it'll we'll either do be
1: dr sleep or <laughs> 2010 that's what I because those yeah. are both spiritual sequels to Kubrick
0: movies or or the shining I guess or uh, the or we, yeah or either. we can
1: just actually redo the shining which is yeah. which would totally be probably my absolute preference <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. oh man okay so we got a lot to talk about real quick uh patreon.com slash Eric and Jeremy we're still doing we do weekly bonus episodes over there. Uh, we still have the pandemic special going on. Uh, oh. If you're listening to this during yes the coronavirus uh, fiasco, uh, pretty much uh, just keeping it rolling until until things uh, until things settle down. I paused uh, billing for May already because I I'm not too optimistic right now, but. Uh, we so May I think will be will be free for everyone, uh, and then we'll we'll kind of reassess. But right now, if you're not a member of our Patreon, this is like the best time to do it because you for one dollar, um, not a recurring payment, just one single dollar, you can get access to uh, a bunch of our like previous bonus episodes. I sort of handpicked some of my favorites that you get access to, and then uh, also cut out all of Jeremy's audio from them. <laughs> Uh, and then you'll get access to our our weekly episodes wa- during the uh, the pandemic, which uh, we've been doing episodes of Tales from the Crypt. We do some fan requests. Uh, so, Jeremy, let's let's dive in here. Uh, Doctor Hayward checks in on Sarah Palmer, who refuses a sedative. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry, wrong yeah, notes. Yeah. Wrong uh-huh, notes. Yeah. Uh, Two thousand one, a space Odyssey. God, dude, I have so many Twin Peaks notes. This is yes. We should just just throw them in at any
1: time. Throw them in at any time. (laughs) Anytime we're getting a little confused, just throw in something about the Black Lodge and it'll probably somehow make more sense in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yes. Uh, This film is directed, produced, and written by Stanley Kubrick, also co-penned by Arthur C. Clarke, who is a science fiction author. That is probably like the biggest like, the biggest deal, I think, about the film, right, is, like, that relationship. I think that's really important in understanding 2001 Space Odyssey.
0: Yeah, and he... Uh, you know, I actually... I tried uh, I tried listening to an audio version of, of the book because uh, I realized I wanted to read it, but it was Sunday and I couldn't get my hands on a physical copy. And uh, right. I started it and... Uh, I couldn't stand, like, the guy's voice who was reading it. He was very, like, you could hear, like, the saliva in his mouth uh, (laughs) in, like, a very disgusting way. It's like listening
1: Uh, to an episode of one of our shows. I know. (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, So, sorry about that. But from what I gather, it's actually, like, pretty different right there's like structurally it's kind of similar but a lot of the details are are, are different
1: so that is are heard. you is that the novel that's based on the film that he wrote
0: yeah they okay. kind of wrote it like concurrently the screenplay and the novel
1: oh so there's yeah so it, it is confusing because this 2001 space odyssey is sort of based or inspired loosely on the sentinel which is clark's short story that's not what you were reading though
0: or listening no no i was reading uh, 2001
1: the the novelization of the film which released after so if you are wow if you are arthur c Clarke, then you are writing a movie based on one of your short stories and then writing another story based on that movie that's that is some that is some psycho artistic nonsense that i love i think that's cool um, Arthur C. Clarke seems like a real cool guy in that interviews book that I've been reading about Stanley Kubrick, the depiction of Arthur C. Clarke and just like everybody's recounting of him is always so like quirky and fun. And like he, like apparently they would just, the two of them would just sit side by side on a couch together and talk like in his, <laughs> in his like little study. And yeah, I think that's just a funny way for two grown adult men working on a project to, interact is like sitting next to each other on a couch like <laughs> yeah. it's yeah they they seem like they were actually best of friends and this is a situation where it's not arthur c Clarke doesn't later come out and be like this guy was a monster like i think they really did like each other throughout and then after they have very arthur c Clarke has very fond things to say about kubrick post post their working together unlike malcolm mcdowell from clockwork orange who hate Stanley Kubrick forever for basically conning him (laughs) the entire time. Sure. That's a different episode. So this, this one though, it is, that relationship's cool. I think that Kubrick's lens narrative lens was completely informed by Arthur C. Mm Clarke. Like it's, it's just an interesting way of making a film. It's not a, it's non-conventional completely. Uh, I would go so far as to say it's it's avant garde. I, I don't think that this is anything short of something like an eraser head, you know, where the narrative is so not what's important about what's going on in each individual scene.
0: No, and I think that that's what, like, when like there's people like i i myself like uh, w- when you like grow up as someone who likes movies you just like inevitably like people tell you to watch 2001 um i actually tried watching this movie like several times when i was a teenager and maybe even like in my early 20s yeah. and i struggled with it like i struggled to finish it like to, even to get maybe even to like the hell stuff Like I just struggled with it Because of the pacing and I didn't know what it, it like Confused me I, I it, yeah. it, it confused me like not what was going on But like what I was supposed To be feeling about it and like It's just such a different experience than just Watching like uh, Right like a conventional A conventional like Narrative sort of Blockbuster movie Right. um the time that when I actually like finally discovered this movie and like realized how brilliant it was was wasn't until like two years ago yeah I was at uh I went to a screening at the the Cinerama Dome They were screening it on on film there and geez uh, that's
1: like that's
0: couldn't like possibly prob- <laughs> be a better situation yeah
1: that's like pr- maybe the most optimal way I would choose to re-watch this revisit this film is to go oh, yeah to the yeah. The,
0: yeah, I saw it was insane. playing on like a Saturday afternoon and I was like, you know what? I've never like if I'm if if I get through this experience and like still don't appreciate two thousand one, then maybe there's something wrong with me. <laughs> but I came out of it just like, man, that was incredible. This is now like one of my favorite movies. Yeah.
1: So yeah, you're a big it, moon truther.
0: Yeah, I am. Yeah, I yeah. think we. I think we faked the old moon landing. <laughs> there, maybe, so, st- maybe, maybe Stanley Kubrick played a part in that. Who knows?
1: I before we get into the plot and anything else, I I wanted to kind of hear what was it like being like watching this film again with kind of sort of mo- like this knowledge you have, you now have, and like and like sort of like this this sort of I don't know like this movie comes out a year before we supposedly go to the moon, and you don't think we did. But I, I just gotta, I just gotta ask. What do you think? What gives? Like, what is that relationship? How was that? What does that relationship mean to you?
0: I think that there were like moments where I was watching this uh, movie, uh, particularly when we're just floating around in space, where um, I'm watching it on my like okay, but not great TV. On like, I think stand high definition or something Mm -hmm. i feel like this is like what outer space looks like like this is i feel like i'm in space right now yeah and uh if you look look at the moon landing footage like i mean i feel like i feel like stanley kubrick could have very easily like yeah (laughs) made made that uh yeah i
1: mean there's all kinds of like weird anecdotes from 2001 like this is a year before we go to the moon and apparently we had never seen the earth from space yet. Like we hadn't had those photographs yet Mm. and he got the shade wrong, but only by like three shades of blue or something. Like there was so much care in preparation for this film and how things would actually work and what possibly space travel could be like. And, you know, I think just, reading any amount of Playboy Playboy articles about Stanley Kubrick at the time, or any time anyone interviews him at all about this, you just get the sense that, like, wow, the magnitude of what went into this film was so precious and so careful. Like... It was way. You just get the sense for him it was just way more about outer space than it was about anything else. Oh yeah, he was obsessed.
0: He was one thing I've learned from reading about. uh, Yeah, that interviews book and then the book uh, Stanley Kubrick and me is like he whatever he's he's interested in he's like he's like full on just like researching like a maniac Mm -hmm. um, and just gets fully into whatever the subject is. Uh, one more thing about like the moon landing is the one thing that I sort of realized after doing some more research is it, it is kind of weird that like he had been living in England for like a long time at this point. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. There's something to be said about like, <laughs> maybe that's not, doesn't really like strengthen the case, but also, <laughs> you know, why did he, why did he decide to le- go to England in the yeah. first place? You know what I mean? R- for um, sure.
1: And I also think, it doesn't matter where you live like if you make a movie that's this good and powerful and space related maybe you could fake something. You know, yeah, god true. like the budget of this film was 10.5 to 12 million dollars give or take yeah. and the box office was 146 million dollars. <laughs> that is some avatar shit. <laughs> like yeah. that is Yeah. That is crazy.
0: Uh, going back to the uh, the uh, what we we're talking about earlier, it's sort of it 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 sounds from what I have read that sort of the success of the movie was like when it first came out, a lot of people didn't know what to make of it and were sort of having the experience that I had. Um, and theaters, kind of like after a while, like before polling it, started to notice that there were these this kind of like. The, like teenagers and like young like academics and like hippies and stuff, who were who were showing up to two thousand one and it kind of gained like a following with that type of crowd and and wow. it just kind of went from there, um, yeah. which is which is kind of interesting. That's uh, super I mean it makes sense.
1: Yeah, I but, mean, it yeah, would make I, sense. I mean, I feel like that's also the David Lynch crowd, too, right? The young people and the hippies and the intellectuals.
0: <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's... Oh, it's the same thing. Like, when you hear about, like, test screenings of, like, Eraserhead or whatever, like, uh, I, there the first screening of 2001, people were, like, leaving, mm-hmm. like, pretty regularly. People were just getting up and leaving at various parts. Yeah. I mean, I don't know.
1: It's weird to me, though, like, I... You know, one of the Playboy articles that Kubrick does, it's almost like they're trying to gotcha him. <sighs> this might, I, it might not be for Playboy, it might be for somebody else, but I feel like it's for Playboy. They're, I feel like the interviewer is trying to like gotcha journalism where he's like, they're like continually pressing him on the critical six failure of 2001 Space Odyssey. Like critics hated it, they didn't like it at all. Yeah. And, this is where we get a lot of great Stanley Kubrick quotes about critics in general, like him just like hating critics, not even thinking they're like they're, they mean anything at all. And also being like, you know, I don't watch other filmmakers work. I don't, I don't know how other people do films This is the only way I know how to do them. But he also mentions that like, like for him, this is like his Avengers. Like this is a, this is the biggest, I think, cri- uh, commercial success of his career i might be mistaken maybe i can't i just don't know what other movie would have been this this like impactful and made that much money back you know like like he talks about this movie as is as it is almost like a a popcorn flick like he's like you can see that like people who want to expand their minds are into it man that's why it's making a lot of money (laughs) and like the way he talks about it's almost like he's it's just so weird because we we think of this film as being so experimental and so you know hard to show our friends and family (laughs) like just sit and watch this you know it definitely doesn't feel like jaws or star wars but it did those numbers pretty much so it's like wow this is of all the films kubrick made this is his cha-ching marvel studios numbers movie you know yeah
0: yeah yeah, that is kind of wild. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's. I mean, like this is everyone says this about about this movie, but like even for the time, like all of the effects. I would say like any of this, a- any of the space shit in this looks better than like I don't know name name like an outer name like an outer space movie from the past five years. Oh, I think it, I just yeah. think like this specific time and then where the technology was at. And Stanley Kubrick's like eye and uh, just like obsession for accuracy, just makes this like I I think just straight up like the best looking sci fi film. Right. I mean I don't know. Uh, I but. mean
1: it's it definitely looks amazing to today, which is can you believe that? I mean, what like the last movie he made before this is Doctor Strangelove, which looks really good for an old black and white film made in the you know 60s but this is also made in the same decade and it just I can't even yeah. put them in the same room together like one looks like it could have been made yesterday the other one looks like an old movie like and it's okay that movies yeah. look like they're old movies because they look like the, they do they look like movies that came out in that era but this transcends that you know
0: yeah and this is uh correct me if I'm wrong but this besides Spartacus is his first color picture that he did it is everything it is up to this second. point was black and white yes yeah. uh, besides Spartacus uh, um
1: I am I'm just about to definitively say something about yeah. Okay, so this is definitively his highest-grossing movie of all time. And wow. it beats out the second one by $20 million. So it beats Full Metal Jacket, which came out 3 decades later. Wow. And so not even adjusting for inflation or anything, it just straight beats it. It it I just can't believe it grossed that much compared to all these other movies. It's insane. Yeah. Like even Spartacus didn't make that much money.
0: Jesus. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the, uh, the soundtrack, obviously like very iconic. He, his choice to use like a lot of these classical numbers, Mm -hmm. uh, also Sprock's Zarathustra, blue Danube, uh, there's, uh, another one that I can't pronounce. That's very famous. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've, Kind of read like a few different things uh, about this uh, that are a little inconsistent with one another. But what it sounds like is he originally wanted to use uh, a lot of like classical music, uh, and MGM said no because it was too expensive. Mm. And he basically had this guy, uh, and I don't have his name in front of me, but he had this like famous composer guy. Mm-hmm. uh do an entire score uh for 2001 and you can actually find it on Spotify. I listened to it the other day. It's pretty good. Yeah. Um but what he was doing was essentially he was uh creating he was he was trying to like uh recreate what Stanley liked about the classical numbers. So it's kind of like him doing like a ripoff of you know, like also yeah. Sprach, Zarathustra. I mean, not really. That's, that's like not a nice way to put it, but it is, it is like pretty good and stuff. But, um, one of the like criticisms of it that I, uh, read about was basically it's, um, Stanley didn't like it because it, it kind of like mirrored, like it, it kind of like, yeah, I guess mirrored what was going on in the, in the film. Whereas like, also, Sprock, Zarathustra, and, like, Blue Danube aren't, like, changing around based on, like, what we see on the screen. Like, they they just kind of, like, set a tone, and then things happen around it. Where mm. this score, uh, I guess Kubrick didn't like that it was kind of, like, sort of, like, a classic, like, action movie score where it's, like you know, uh, big timpanies and like horns when something crazy is happening. And then it like slows down when we're just kind of like milling about space and, and just kind of like rises and falls with like the action of the, of the movie. Um, and I guess that he like didn't tell this composer before the (laughs) premiere that he didn't use any of his music (laughs) and he was like very pissed off.
1: That's... (sighs) I just wonder what the what the deal is there? Like that's what I mean Kubrick is known for pulling moves like that. Like
0: Alex getting, North is his name.
1: Alex North? Yeah, I was going to ask you what his name was cuz yeah, he Kubrick is famous for doing stuff like that where he just won't tell people things. He's like pitting people against each other behind the scenes. Like he's working very smartly, right? But it's like a snake. You know, he's like Yeah. He's like getting what he wants and getting like ultimately what's best for the film, but he's doing it in this way. That's like, I don't know, incredibly not straightforward. It's, it's just so weird. So you end up like a lot of people just completely burned by Kubrick. And yeah, I just, I, that to me, it, there's a dark part of me that chuckles to myself a little bit about like, oh my gosh, like what a, what the balls on Kubrick, you know, to do that. But uh, ultimately I'm like, you couldn't just tell him <laughs> before he like shows yeah. up with his family to the <laughs> fucking premiere. Like that's a low blow, yeah. you know?
0: I don't know. It's like, man, it's, it's, it's really, you know, this book, I can't, I can't talk about how great this book is enough. The, the Stanley Kubrick and me. Cause it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's like, uh, I guess people like Kubrick, people don't love it. Cause it like, doesn't talk enough about like Kubrick and stuff, but I find it like, truly fascinating because you're just this is a guy who was like stanley kubrick's assistant for 30 years yeah and he's just taught and he by the way until very late in his life like pretty much around the before like right before eyes wide shut had never watched any of stanley's movies (laughs) and when he finally did watch them he didn't really like them yeah uh because they reminded him of like like how long the production process took for everything and yeah also he was just like he says he was like into westerns and just was had didn't have. Is the guy that the wrote taste. this book
1: also an actor? Was he also like in Kubrick movies?
0: He no, uh, okay. I think he might have been in. I think I think he might have been like a little had a little part in something, um, but I don't think you would recognize him from like being on screen. But he uh, yeah, this is talks about the basis Kubrick.
1: of the documentary film worker right? Like film worker came out in like twenty seventeen it's about Leon Vitali. Is that who is that who it is?
0: No, his name is Emilio de oh, Alessandro or something like that. Um but he talks about like he kind of goes through the whole um his whole relationship with Kubrick and at first it's like he like told me we were gonna you know work on two this movie two thousand one for like six months and that all of a sudden it's like three more months and then three more months and then my hours get longer and longer and blah, blah, blah. And then by the end of his career, he's like just fully figured out Kubrick and Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Basically what happens is this guy like finally quits. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Kubrick like convinces him to come back for, for, uh, to help out with uh, eyes wide shut. And he mm. says, it's just like a 16 week project. So Emilio's <laughs> like, so we moved back from Italy and just planned on two, two full years. Yeah, of uh, of working on it, like he just like fully found out. But one of the like most interesting parts uh, of this book is when he's talking about the different actors and collaborators that he would pick up from the airport and like drive to Kubrick's to mm. to meet him for the first time, and they would always be very nervous, and they would always ask him like what Stanley's like in real life, mm-hmm. and he 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 had like a very good relationship with them, and he was always like oh, he's great. He's he's great. You're going to love him. He's, he's a great guy. And everyone yeah. was, like, so skeptical of yeah. <laughs> of him. Um, but it sounded like, like there were actually, more often than not, people actually wound up, like, getting along with Kubrick. But there are right. these situations, like, with Alex North where it's, like, you know, maybe he, like, maybe that was a little bit of a dick move. Oh, um,
1: for sure. I think <laughs> also, like, the interviews book of Stanley Kubrick that I think you've finished and I'm st- still in... You do get that sense of warmth from the more private times that Kubrick has with some of these interviewers, you know, like where it's at his house and they're playing chess. Like, he's actually incredibly, can be incredibly warm. He's not, like, the warmest person on set and maybe not, like, you know, in the thick of a heated interview. You know, sometimes I think his responses are, like, clinical and very intellectual, overly intellectual. But, you know, you also get these, like, silly moments with him at the house where he's just like fiddling with a radio. He just like loves stereos and radios. He, like he loved tinkering with things. And I think he, f- there's like a lot of joy there that sometimes you miss from just the, the documentary life in pictures, which kind of conveys this God like mastermind, this evil yeah, genius, he's which is like true, but it's also he had kids and they loved him. You know what I mean? Like he's like, he's also a, a, a human being too.
0: Yeah, he's a mad scientist, and, like, it just obsessed with efficiency, and he, like, I mean, his, uh, you know, by this point, 2001, he was living at um, the place where he lived for the rest of his life, which was basically, like, a huge countryside, like, mansion that was, like, part studio, where, like, right. they, would, they would, like, work on his films and stuff there. Like, he did, like, posts there, and his office was there, yeah. and um and his family was around so it was like a very much like a blend of like uh uh just like it was just like a consistent like there was no like line dividing like work and like mm-hmm. personal life and family and stuff it was just all like wrapped into one yeah. um which i find very very fascinating it sounds like he had a very fun life it Sounds oh
1: very cool. it, it, i mean it's a dream like he's yeah. he is like maybe not personally my idol like i don't know if i want to be his personality but i definitely want to live his life where he's like you know hidden away from the world doesn't have to deal with the prob you know the problems that come with a celebrity rather he's just with his family and spends his money the way he wants and gets to chill in the countryside before we get too far away from the music though i do want to mention briefly like legatti and just focus in on, you know, Georgie Ligeti, Ligeti yeah, being
0: yeah. that like, that's the one I could,
1: if, you, if you're watching 2001 space odyssey, uh, you'll be listening to the score. And then suddenly one of these things is not like the other. Uh, so, you know, you listen to blue Danube by Strauss and you're like, Oh, that's beautiful. You know? And then suddenly you get like the insane, uh, everyone's voice is layering on top of each other. It sounds like a haunted house suddenly just, like erupted around you. It is some incredibly creepy, very out there. I would say non-conventional classical pieces, stuff that you wouldn't, I, you wouldn't necessarily want to go see in an orchestra or maybe we would, but like, this is not like Beethoven. This is like experimental modern, uh, classical arrangements that are very like very dark and very strange. And they're all things to Ligeti.
0: It's so good. My favorite I, I forgot about this scene, but I think my favorite scene is when they, it, sort of towards the beginning, when they go to the monolith on the moon. Yeah. That's buried on the moon, and that that music, the Ligeti music, Ugh. is just. We also, yeah. I think, we get some. I'm reading. We get some Ligeti in uh, Eyes Wide Shut. And I was the Shining. To remember the beginning of the oh, Shining. And the shining. Is okay, Ligeti. cool. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I it might be more than just the beginning of the Shining. I wonder if like yeah. that bum 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 bum. I wonder if that's spaghetti too. Yeah, but you know I had
0: spaghetti yeah. uh, and meatballs for uh, for dinner.
1: Oh, re- really?
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. So <laughs> <laughs> so what I, what I find interesting about this is we so we see uh, 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 Lolita is kind of like it seems like it was a little star studded. Uh, obviously. Um, Dr. Strangelove has a lot of, like, bigger names for the time. Uh, I don't recognize, like, any of these people from anything else in, in 2001. Do you?
1: That is a good question. I guess I don't.
0: Like, I wonder if he was yeah. intentionally going the route of, like, you know, lesser known actors. Because I literally no one in this movie I recognize from anything else.
1: Yeah, n- nor I. I'm gonna, yeah. I guess is Gary Lockwood p- pretty much who we follow from the halfway point to the end? Is I, that the male actor who's like, yeah, who's Frank. Dave <laughs> essentially? I think so. Um, yeah. Role as astronaut Frank Poole. Oh, so he's Frank. So he's
0: not he's even Dave. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay, great. So, yeah, I guess looking up whoever plays Dave, he would be the only person that I think maybe I would recognize outside of this. But Mm. outside of – I mean, really, it doesn't – I think you're absolutely right. Like, it's not – he wanted no names. If he wanted, like, Marlon Brando in it, I think he could have probably gotten that. But I don't think he – I don't think he he did. Um, this is yeah, and this guy I've I have seen I've seen him in other stuff. He's in that show The Path. Uh, Keir mm-hmm. Dalia is his name. That show The Path. He's also in the Dave shows up in the in the sequel.
0: Okay. Spoiler.
1: He's in the Good uh-huh. Shepherd. I think he's also in another Kubrick film. If I'm not mistaken, I think he's in. Barry Lyndon. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. But, um, he's not. So there's that.
0: <laughs> he's well, actually right. Barry Lyndon.
1: Yeah. But yeah, um, that'd be the only person I think I would remember. But yeah, no, I mean, it's not a, it's not about stars and actors and yes.
0: Yeah. um, so, do you got any more, any any other, like, trivia or background you want to get to before we dive into the plot?
1: I mean, no. Pretty much everything you're seeing on screen during the film is built. I think that's notable. Like, this is mm. the time before CG. And, they, and a lot of this stuff isn't necessarily miniatures either. Like, a lot of the spaceships are from the exteriors. But if you are an in interior, like, that big rotating ship that Dave and Frank are on... Is an actual set, which is crazy. Like things had to be bolted to the floor as a huge wheel was spinning.
0: <laughs> yeah, I there's some things that I was watching that I was just like, I don't, I can't even begin to th- understand how they did that. Right. Yeah. Uh, particularly like the woman uh, walking with the tray. Mm-hmm. I think I maybe get it, but I don't. You know what I'm talking about when she walks upside yeah. down.
1: Yeah, right. It's like the scene with the um, where she's giving him the meals or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah. Where he has to pick like crappy space food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also think uh, that like you know the set design for this movie is really interesting and it's very Kubrickian. Like mm. we, are, you are watching not the <laughs> a guesstimation of what the future might look like. You're watching what if Stanley Kubrick had his way. What the future would look like it like the furniture is psychotic. It's like, it's like stark and, and bleak and sterile, like harsh reds on whites, backgrounds and stuff. It's like really, you know, jarring, beautiful and very artistic. But like, you know, I think that other space films have probably even got it more accurately. Like how it'll look (laughs) like, uh, it won't look this clean, l- l- no. most likely. Yeah, but it is uh, it is definitely cool to see, like, you know, something look this good that is this practical in an era before we have CGI. That's really all I wanted to mention before we jump into the plot.
0: Okay, so prehistoric African Velt uh, tribe of hominids are driven away from their waterhole by a rival tribe. Uh, Later, they awaken to find a featureless alien monolith has appeared before them. Um, Seemingly influenced by the monolith, they discover how to use a bone as a weapon and return to drive their rivals away. Uh, So that's one thing that I read that's different from the book is in, in, I can't remember which is, in the movie, it's implied that this is a weapon, right? That they're, like, uh, using this bone yes. as a weapon? Okay, then in the y- book, yeah. it's a tool. It's, like, one or the other for... I can't remember how it's... But uh, that was one of the differences I read. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, this is... this The first couple times I watched this, like, when I tuned out, this was, like, to be honest with you, like, a little uh, hard for me to get through. Um just as like a dumb teenager like throwing on a movie uh to like entertain myself right um (laughs) and it was almost like too intellectual for me like i understood it but i was like it i don't know it felt i don't know i i i think i was just too stupid and and young but uh i mean now i really appreciate it but
1: it's weird it's it is um It's, yeah, it's, I mean, weird is like the best way to describe it. It's just strange. It's like you're not sure what you're looking at. And I guess the metaphor is very easy to arrive on that what happens is man makes weapons for food, but then makes weapons of war and then, and like turns those weapons to weapons of war and cut to billions of years later we have spaceships which i think is kubrick's way of obviously saying that's what those are you know machines are sure. machines used for war used for gathering food and like the bone flying into the air and then becoming a spaceship <laughs> is yeah is illustrated pretty clearly it's it's like such a brilliant shot and but oh, yeah. it's almost too good you know what i mean it's almost too clean you're almost like ooh wow I get it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's pretty, pretty in your face. It's yeah. What do you think of the pacing? Cause I th- feel like if, uh, you know, there's some sl- scenes are slower than others in this movie. Yeah. Um, what do you think of this one? Is it, is it too long for you or is it just right?
1: I, yeah. I guess there's two, I'm of two minds. One is nothing is happening. Like nothing is actually happening. So, And that's, that is true. So people who hate this film are not wrong. Like things don't happen necessarily. Like it's, it's more of like an experience or evokes some sort of emotion. And it's also telling you a different kind of story, but it's, it is like, it is very long in the tooth. Like I was watching it today and I was just like, I love this, but I don't fault anyone for not liking it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Um, I'm sympathetic to people that don't. Yeah, don't well, because I'm, movie. I'm like,
1: I'm of course like that too. Where there was a once upon a time, I didn't understand or get it, the the film, you know. Yeah, and, but then I think something clicks for you at some point. Maybe it's just an age thing, and then you start to go like, Yeah, I could watch this all day. I could watch little spaceships slowly floating in the air, <laughs> like getting in sync and then spinning as the one ship docks into the other. You know, like. I can watch that for years. I don't know. It just becomes palpable and you, and you like it and the music is great. And you know that they're building a world, which is fun or a galaxy, which is fun. But the ape stuff in particular is particularly mean. And I like that it starts in such a primal angry way because I think that it's not, it's not immediately clear what is primal. Or what is, what is, what is, who's the villain? You know what I mean? Like, it's not clear what is the object of desire. You know, we see the monolith and it's, we don't know what it is, but we know that there's death in this world. (laughs) You know, we know there's death in this story and it's coming from some place. And I think that that's really interesting to start with such, with such fury, you know? But then, yes, yeah. yeah, so of course, then we get to like boring, like uh, uh, boners having conversations, <laughs> innocuous conversations on, <laughs> on spaceships. And it's like all that stuff I love, too. But I think that it's it's a good setup for a movie that doesn't have a lot of, quote unquote, action.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, so millions of years later, Dr. Haywood Floyd, chairman of the U.S. National Council of Astronautics, uh, travels to uh, Clavius Base, a United States outpost on the moon via Space Station 5. Uh, Clavius Floyd speaks to a meeting of Clavius personnel and stresses the need of, uh, for secrecy with respect to the newest discovery. Um, Floyd's mission is to investigate a recently found artifact buried four million years ago near the crater Tycho. Uh, Floyd and others ride in a moon bus to the artifact, a monolith uh, identical to the one encountered by the ape men. As they examine the monolith, it is struck by lightning, upon which it emanates a high power radio uh, radio signal. Uh, so, yeah, kind of a distillation of a lot of different things, but. Uh, I don't know. What are your, th- what are your thoughts? I know. I think I read that this is Kubrick's daughter here in, uh in the, the little, the little girl on the yeah, TV.
1: That would be, that'd be good. I hope that's the case.
0: Yeah, I think it is.
1: Yeah, that's cool. I, I like this like sort of world building again. It's like we're getting just details about stuff. Like it's not important that he has a daughter, but it's important that we're seeing him communicate through a television to earth you know and it's important that i do think that there's something just so unnerving about this whole film i don't know if you get the same sense but like that conversation he has with the british guy in those chairs where they're like let's just stop for a drink or why don't you just sit down it feels so hostile even though everyone's being so polite it just like this feeling of dread where Hey, we found something and you know, we we haven't we lost contact with them. I don't know what 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 happened. You just get the sense that something is coming. And yeah, it it just like so a very polite conversation feels very dreadful. Not unlike the conversation that Jack Nicholson has with his boss the interview in the interview of The
0: Shining. Yes. Where it's like it's, like, um, it's
1: just like should be normal, but it's like you're just full of dread the whole time.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh one one thing that I'm like a little unclear about is the monolith. What do you uh so is this the same monolith that w- that the ape men encountered or is this a different one? I Which, interpret it as being the same one. Okay. That's I also what I always yeah. have two. Maybe uh, it's
1: not. Maybe there are multiple, but I do also think that it is a alien device or it itself is an alien, like a living thing. So I interpret the monolith as being something that isn't, doesn't play by our rules. So like when the apes come across it, it like grants them like a wish or something. It's very strange, but then when we come across it later, we kind of don't know what happens with when the astronauts find it here, right?
0: Yeah. Um, I read that uh, Kubrick, I mean, Kubrick consulted like tons of experts for this, one of which was Carl Sagan. Yeah, uh, that's great. And apparently Carl Sagan's advice, Kubrick was like, how should I do like the alien, if I want to do aliens, like how should I do it? Like what, yeah. what, what do I like little green men or like what? And Carl Sagan's advice was like, don't even like, try to uh i guess do like any sort of uh uh don't try and do like anything that's been done in science fiction a- mm-hmm. at this point because it's just like not probably not even close like just just go just like think out think like more grand than that and i like that his i actually love this this is like perfect to me to me the perfect choice to just have it be a very tall yeah ominous black a uh, rectangle. Is I, cool. I think it's great. Yeah, no, it's one of the best
1: choices. You know, I think there was, you know, I, this is like, uh, who knows if I'll ever actually finish this project, but I was writing a science fiction piece at one point where aliens were gas. Like they were just, they were gaseous. They were like more close to like what air is than they were like, f- you know, corporeal beings because I, it was that same, it, Impulse of like, if there are aliens, who says that they evolved like we did? You know what I mean? Like, who says they have eyes and shit? Like, why would they have that? Like, right. What maybe they came from, they're in, they have what we assume is some sort of intellectual properties, but they travel this certain way. You know what I mean? Like, why would it be, why would they look anything like us? You know what I mean? Or be yeah, monsters or yeah, be right. ugly. Like, yeah. Why
0: would they have any like, Besides, like, the concept of, like, time and, like, life and death, like, that's pretty much it. And yeah. I mean, there might even be things that, like, just don't die. But, um, right. Yeah. It, I like, mean, you yeah. don't know. Like, there very well could be, like, a gas, you know, you can encounter a gas that is, uh, technically an alien life form. Yeah, um, exactly.
1: And this is, this is along those same lines of, like, it's a big square piece of obsidian black stone. You're like, what? Yeah but it somehow has properties that are either so radioactive or so outside of this world. Maybe we don't have a chemical property for what it's doing, but it's doing something and it's interacting with us in some way. Yeah. I think I, you know, I was, I obviously favor some of the more exciting parts of this film. You know, I think the house stuff is always going to be my favorite, but I think this is like a close second or something where like, I just love them finding this thing. And then it kind of just cuts to 18 months yeah. later. Like we don't see really what happened to the monolith.
0: Yep. Yeah. Um, so. uh, also monolith terrifying. <laughs> it's yes. like very scary. Uh, yeah. 18 months later, the U S spacecraft discovery one is bound for Jupiter uh, on board. I, uh, which I read that they were going to do Saturn at first, but it was too hard to, the rings properly, I guess. Oh, okay. Uh, a little side note. Uh, on board are mission pilots and scientists, Dr. David Bowman and Frank Poole, uh, along with three other scientists in suspended animation. Uh, most of Discovery's operations are controlled by HAL, a HAL 9000 computer with a human personality. Uh, conversation between HAL and Bowman is interrupted when HAL reports the imminent failure of an antenna control device. Mm-hmm. Uh, the astronauts receive it in an extra vehicular, vehicular yeah. activity mm-hmm. pod, but find nothing wrong. Hell uh, suggests reinstalling the device and landing it fails so the problem could be verified. Mission Control advises the astronauts that the results from their own computer indicate that Hell is in error about the device's imminent failure. Hell attributes the d- discrepancy to human error.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, this is. Um pretty just astounding. I don't know what else to house to put it. Like for something that is so iconic in film. And it's also been like, people have tried to do this again and again in different ways. You, It's never been done again like this with this, like as effective as this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's um, so dreadful and terrifying. It's like it sort of reminds me of like John Carpenter's The Thing or something where you're like not quite sure who is bad or what is bad yet like the mystery is is this thing a villain or <laughs> is it right. a good guy <laughs> yeah
0: I like I what do you think of hell are you like when you watch this are you like hell is evil or um,
1: uh yeah i'm I'm thinking that Hal is a computer who's become sentient and for whatever reason is choosing to pick off these astronauts is what I'm assuming watching it
0: yeah one thing that i uh notice is it's i mean i don't know if this is intentional or not these characters these two um the 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 astronauts are, like, like Hal is just as human as them. You know what I mean? Like, he, like, obviously, he's a computer, but, like, in almost some ways, like, he has, like, more emotion than them. Like, specifically, sort of further on, he gets sort of, like, almost, like, neurotic or something and, like, (laughs) unsure and kind of, like, worried. Mm -hmm. Um, Where it's, like... I don't know. He, he, like, becomes, like, a. I You started kind of, like, thinking of him as, as like, not, like, a computer, but, like, something greater than that. Well, that's
1: the paranoia of it, right? Like, that's, that's the fear, is, like, exactly what you're saying, where you know in your head that this is a computer. So this is a malfunctioning computer, right? So it actually doesn't have... Ill will or malice, but it is malfunctioning. It is, and what it's causing it to do is for some reason pick off these astronauts. But the paranoia is that you're interpreting Hal as having emotions or worry when really it's just like self preservation programming, right? Uh. Like, like, like later in the film, like, well, I mean, which we should just get to it. Like, concerned about Hal's behavior, Bowman and Poole enter the eva pod to talk without hal overhearing and agree to disconnect hal if he is proven wrong how hal follows their conversation by lip reading
0: (laughs) yes which i love this this they they did have like a full intermission when i saw this at the cinerama Mm -hmm. dome this is like such a good spot for an intermission you just see that hal can like watch them lip reading Mm -hmm. and then you just cut i would have killed for that experience, Eric, to see that with you fun. at the Cineran. I home. I literally think about it's it's top probably top three favorite movie experiences, movie going experiences.
1: Yeah. Uh, while Pool is on a spacewalk outside his pod, attempting to replace the antenna unit, Hal takes control of the pod. Severs Pool's oxygen hose and sets him adrift. Very iconic oh. scene. I uh, used to be one of my backgrounds of my wallpaper on my computer. Oh, it was yeah. just yeah, that yellow spacesuit just like floating. Like flying away in space.
0: Yeah. This um, is Kubrick breathing, by the way. The audio of breathing is uh, apparently Kubrick. Oh, really? Kubrick's breath. Yeah. That is cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see here. A uh, sense of adrift. Bowman takes another pod to rescue Poole while he's outside. Hal turns off life support functions of the crewmen in suspended Animation, therefore killing them. So the people on board who are in suspended animation. Mm. When Bowman returns to the ship with Poole's body, Hal refuses to let him in, stating that the astronauts plan to deactivate him uh, jeopardizes the mission. Bowman opens the ship emergency airlock manually, enters the ship and proceeds to Hal's processor core, where begins disconnecting Hal's circuits. Hal tries to reassure Bowman, then pleads with him to stop, then expresses fear. As Bowman deactivates his higher intellectual functions, Hal regresses to his earliest programmed memory, the song Daisy Bell, which he sings. When the yeah. disconnection is complete, a pre-recorded video message plays revealing that the mission's objective is to investigate a radio signal sent from the lunar artifact, the monolith, to Jupiter. So, yep. yeah. So,
0: what, you, what? how did you feel about this whole sequence? I mean, it feels like... It it like when he's turning off the little uh the little knobs there, and we're we're hearing Hell's voice uh change. I mean, it sounds like he's like it feels like like he's killing someone. You know, <laughs> it's like it like fully feels like uh, like a like a murder. Uh, like like it feels like Hell is like dying. Like gr- greater than just like a computer being turned off. It's like. Right. I don't know it's it's uh i don't know if I'm supposed to feel that way but that that's kind of like what i what i get when I watch this so I'm like hmm it's kind of interesting uh sort of like uh having this computer that is very like humanized i guess in my mind but uh yeah I mean and technically it's like very it's great it's like amazing suspense building and when we're when he's finally turning off hell, it's 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 wild. Um, and isn't Daisy Bell like? There's some history behind that, where like Daisy Bell was like the first song a computer sang or some shit like that. Um, like historically in the real world, um, it has some significance. But uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about this whole uh, this whole part?
1: Uh, I th- so I I love it. It's my favorite part of the whole film. I think it's you know probably the most Parodied and you know uh done to death part of the film it's like this idea of an AI i guess becoming sentient or getting too much power or whatever mm. it's like it straddles this like weird line of like is this a robot or is this a person what is a person I think the whole film is kind of dealing with like what the hell are people you know and I think that this is illustrates it in such a profound way and I think that that's why it's in here along with everything else i think that it's also like you know just effective horror and one of my favorite choices is that like hal doesn't have like hal has very specific things that hal can do and all of those things actually make sense to me so when hal does surprise kill all of the people on board and then like somebody outside because he's doesn't want the mission to be jeopardized because they're going to turn him off. Um, He, you know, Bowman comes back in the ship and then kind of just slowly walks <laughs> to yeah. the core without really any threat of danger because at this point, there's not a lot Hal can actually do. Like, Hal can't, like, pick up a, a, bo- a box of nails and throw it at Bowman. Like, Hal can't crush him... Cal can't explode the, the spacecraft. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, Hal is just a program. And I think I just like that whole sequence of how the torture of Hal being turned off, even after Hal's done some so much nasty shit, it's like you feel bad for it, but you also like are scared for Bowman because you're not sure like what Hal's capable of. You don't know if he could shock him or something weird. But then, nope, Dave just turns it off. Yeah. And, and just the constant conversing back and forth is so wonderful of Dave knowing that he's conversing with a robot. <laughs> and Hal constantly saying, Dave, what are you doing, Dave? Like that, that constantly coming back to his name, you know, is something you would do personally to somebody to stop them from doing something. It's how you right. g- usually in true crime scenarios get murderers to not kill you as you say your own name out loud because humanizing people tends to be in your favor But uh, if you're trying to survive a serial killer. Uh, what do you think of the song? Like the choice to, he sings this like pathetic song before he shuts down.
0: I love it. I love the yeah. the vocal change uh i did look it up it so in 1961 uh in ibm 704 was programmed to sing daisy bell it, it is the earliest demonstration of computer speech thi- synthesis um so that's cool that they they picked uh they picked that song but uh yeah no i love it it's 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 very it's very good very effective yeah um so Jupiter, Bowman leaves Discovery One in an EVA pod to investigate another monolith orbiting the planet. Okay, so there's like different monoliths floating around, I guess, um, is what this Wikipedia implying.
1: Sure, yeah, and I don't, is I don't think that anything is explicitly said in the film. No. But I yeah. love, you know, I, that's the interpretation. I love that. I also have, my interpretation is that it can be and two places at once. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that it's all kind of one thing, but I, whatever.
0: Yeah. Uh, the pod is pulled into a vortex of colored light. Uh, and Bowman is carried across vast distances of space while viewing bizarre cosmological phenomena and strange landscapes of unusual color. Uh, Bowman finds himself in a large neoclassical bedroom, uh, he sees and then becomes older versions of himself. Uh, first, standing in the bedroom, middle aged, and still in his spacesuit. Then, dressed in leisure attire and eating dinner. And finally, as an old man lying on a bed. A monolith appears at the foot of the bed. And as Bowman reaches for it, he is transformed into a fetus, uh, enclosed in a transparent orb of light which floats in space besides the earth, uh, gazing at it so yeah uh, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of a lot of normal stuff i dude i love this whole montage when he's when he's going into the monolith i just i love it so much uh it's so it's 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 incredible there's i i i guess uh monument valley, which i have been to is like a part of this um when they're monument valley has these big uh it's sort of like Grand canyon esque but um a lot more, like, there's a lot more, like, right angles and, like, uh, it's hard to describe, but it's uh, it's in there. Um, yeah, it's incredible. And I can't think, like, I this is, when I talk about, like, I can't even begin to understand how he, like, made this image. Like, I'm mostly talking about this sequence uh, where I'm, yeah. like, I don't even, like, know where to start with this. Like, there's certain things, like, the close-up of an eyeball with, like... The colors inverted and i'm like okay i get that but like some of the shit i'm just like whatever like i don't even right uh, i don't know
1: (laughs) yeah it's so psychedelic and like something it's it's also okay so this sequence has the unfortunate is under the umbrella of the unfortunate reality that upon the 90s maybe as early as the 90s definitely by the 2000s like anyone could make this sequence on iMovie <laughs> like yeah. there is nothing yeah. there is nothing special or really holding you back from just doing exactly this and, and i and i think most of us when we first got a hold of our first video editing software did something similar like where yeah. we just like oh i can just do colors and go crazy and just make some nonsense great but it's hard to imagine going back in time to a place where you know this was like a craft (laughs) this had like so much craft and skill behind it. Uh, I I think it is one of the things that holds up the least about the film is like the trip to Jupiter other than just being a big choice. Cause it's definitely a big choice, but I think it is like visuals like this are just not as exciting as maybe they were to people in the sixties. Um, to me it does just look like a screensaver and I'm like, yeah, it's a little bit. Yeah. And I'm like, and it's not, yeah. And I like, I like the choices to show an eye or like a sperm or whatever it is, like all the different things it cuts to. But I'm also like, yeah, this was, it goes on for a long time.
0: So, Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) Uh, What do you think of, what do you think of the old uh, Victorian uh, bedroom stuff and the, the neoclassical bedroom
1: it's perfect but it yeah. is perfect in that kubrick way of like this is how kubrick would want to end his life you know like kubrick's like this is kubrick really it's like him landing in a room where is like it's like the first thing him playing chess or is it like him dining or something like what's the first thing he sees it's like a uh, large nice. neoclassical bedroom he sees then becomes older of himself but what's the middle-aged his first standing in the bedroom, middle age and still in spacesuit. Sh- suit, then dress in leisure, attire eating dinner. Right. And he drops the wine. Yeah. And then when he looks, he's in bed dying. Yeah. It's, um, it's like a whole, it's like a man's life done in, done in like two minutes. It's also yeah. like, okay. Tell me if this reminded you of this at all, but it reminded me a lot of the scene in the shining where he, goes into room 20 237. 237 and sees the old woman in the bathtub. Yeah, yeah. Like they both are shot very similarly and have the same vibe. I think even like the yeah. colors might be similar where it's like a green room or something. Yeah. yep, Yeah. And, and to me this felt very similarly to that where it's like now we're in a room, but this is not a real room in time or space. This is a manifestation, something being created for you and i don't know what (laughs) so what do you think of uh what do you think of the star child like what do you think of that all that
0: um i mean i think it's i think it's uh very good i don't know did you read that last
1: sentence in the wikipedia
0: i'm sorry did you finish it i did yeah okay great so yeah Uh, so yeah.
1: yeah it's a big fetus floating through the space yep right Yeah, and it's called... uh, Later we know it's called The Star Child, but I don't think it was named in the film. No. Yeah. And apparently that is, like, what? Like, the next evolution of man is
0: supposed to be that? Like, we're, like, weird babies? (laughs) I guess that's... Yeah, I don't know. Um, That's one thing about this movie is I don't know if I have, like... Like, I don't... If you asked me, like, what does this all mean, I don't really have, like, a strict interpretation of it that i like have come up with myself um to me it is more just like the idea of um i guess the evolution of humanity and the idea of like what does it mean when like we encounter something that's like beyond our just like uh Beyond what we can comprehend, or like what we should, what we should be, uh, I guess, encountering. I don't know, like, like sure, I'm, yeah, like I don't, I, I don't know. Do you have like an interpretation of like what this means specifically, like the ending?
1: Right. No, I mean, I guess I always tend to go literally first, and if that doesn't suffice, then I start to reach out into like the more existential or metaphorical, but. I guess literally what we're seeing is like a man go to Jupiter and become that and come home as that. And so, you know, my mind immediately goes to, so this is, this is somehow uh, some kind of ascension to a different type of human. Like he's become the next level leveled up as a human and he's come home to basically, and shit's going to change right? Like this is the dawn of a new of the new era, right? Cause like in the beginning we see the apes and then a bunch of years later, it's the dawn of the new era, which is spaceships and men. And then this ends sort of with, it'll just keep going on and on and on new beings all can- coming from the same place, something like that. But You know, it's of course it's up for interpretation because it's doesn't tell you anything. Uh, So, yeah, it's it really is a stumper. Like it really is like something that encourages people to go get coffee and pie after the film and talk about it. And I think that's. Yeah. I mean, that was Kubrick's literal objective. Like he liked that about it. Um, you know, uh, there's this there's this quote. In his in that book, where he t- Arthur C. Clarke says something to the effect of, "This is a film that you cannot possibly know what it means by only seeing it one time," and Kubrick rejected that idea. He said he, Arthur's wrong. Like, that's not right. Hmm. Like you can watch this one time and get, you know, he's like, every, with like with every great film, I hope that it has, like potential meaning and potential benefits of rewatching it. But he was like, this is a film that's intended for you to watch once and have a feeling about it. (laughs) Like this is not some pretentious, you won't get it on your first meeting. This is what it is like, have fun, like talk about it, discuss it. What does this mean to you? What do they make you feel like? And to me, that's so awesome.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of where like, uh, Lynch and Kubrick kind of intersect a little bit. Is I think Lynch has has that a little bit with some some of his stuff. Um, I mean, some more than more than others, but um, yeah, I don't know. I kind of like like with this movie. I'm like, I you know, I could sit around and talk talk about the finale of Twin Peaks all day, and like mm-hmm. sort of like what I think is going on and what what you know what it all means. But with this movie, I'm just kind of like, I sit and I watch it and I am like, my head is just like, uh, like my brain is just working like crazy the entire time. Yeah, yeah. And it's like making me think about these things like while it's all going on. And then afterwards, I'm just like, I don't even know if I'm like supposed to like, I don't like, I don't know. I, I, I feel like. I I feel like there's almost, like, no need for me to try and, like, come up with my own little weird, like, interpretation of it. Because I think I got out of it, like, what he wants, which is basically, like, you watch it and it, like, stimulates your mind in a a certain way that sort of makes you think about, like, uh, life in, like, a much grander uh, uh, lens, I guess. Yeah. Um, I don't know, like there is, the, I do I do t- get a little bit of like sort of, um, yeah, I guess sort of what you were talking about, like maybe this is all just like a cycle kind of thing and this, the ending of it is he just goes back to earth and it's kind of like another, another phase. Um, mm. But I don't know, there's something to, I've been trying to th- like figure out like what it means how... Like in the beginning, we these apes like discover weapons. This like physical like bone that he can like kill this leopard with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know the leopard in the I guess th- what would be the third act of this film is hell, right? Like he's mm-hmm. um, he is the enemy. And right. what do they what do they kill hell with? They kill hell with. Uh, the buttons of this like machine that was built by humans right um and hell wouldn't exist if humans didn't exist i don't know like once i start to think about it it almost like it's like too much for me (laughs) like right like in a good way you know what i mean i'm like i don't think i need to like i don't know i don't need to like sit and think about it too much but i like that it makes makes me sort of think along those lines
1: Well, and I also think that there's something to be said about, like, does this film make you feel anything personally, too? Because to me, what it does is, like, after watching a film like this, I become very much more, like, contemplative about space. And I think that that can be very scary, right? Like, Star Wars doesn't do this for people because Star Wars is a Western you know, like star Wars is not a movie where you consider what would space travel be like, because every planet you can breathe on, it's basically like taking a train to another city. It's going to another planet like star Trek, maybe a little more, but like 2001 space odyssey, the movie sunshine by Danny Boyle and a handful of other space movies, probably, uh, what Solaris, right. Mm. Um, there's another one really make you think like, well, how small are we? Like, cause in our day to day, we're so big. Like we're like, are the only thing we care about. The only thing we think about, you know, we're just trying to get through the day. We're trying to make money, trying to eat food, trying to stay sheltered. But you know, like how exactly how small are we and how insignificant are we? And I think that, you know, 2001 space odyssey dares ventures to make some wild guesses in a fun way you know and i think that it's it's cool to live in that space for a while man you know yeah like live in that world like because tomorrow you'll forget about it probably you won't probably be thinking about how insignificant humans are you'll be like back on to you know COVID is still a thing you know what i mean like you'll be back on you know your life but in the moment of watching something like this personally, I go like, wow, like maybe, maybe we are very insignificant. Maybe we're not. Maybe we're actually potential star children someday. Like maybe like the human race holds some kind of key to something, you know? Yeah. And I don't think the answer super matters, but I think it's, it is important for humans to look to the stars. Yeah. Yeah. Hear that, listeners?
0: Look at those stars.
1: Yeah, and I ain't
0: talking Tom Cruise. <laughs> no, we're talking about uh, Twinkle Twinkle. You know, yeah, Twinkle Twinkle. <laughs> yeah, Twinkle Twinkle. <laughs> Jeremy, uh, yeah, this has been a great chat, and I, you know, what do you say we do another movie next week? Uh, hey. How about uh, Fire Walk with Me by David? All
1: right. Lynch? If what I'm not if I'm it? not busy, you got it.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Well, uh, folks, thanks for listening. Patreon.com slash Eric and Jeremy. You can, uh, you'll, you'll have a blast over there. Literally $1 right now. It's never, never been a better opportunity to get some premium, uh, content. Uh, that's about tales from the crypt and nineties comedy movies. Uh, and Jeremy, anything you want to plug or say before we, before we sign off here?
1: Um live long and prosper.
0: You heard it folks. <laughs> Norma I'll see you in my dreams.